Welcome to SLP Nerdcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Amy, and we appreciate you tuning in. In our podcast, we review and provide commentary on resources, literature, and we discuss issues related to the field of speech-language pathology. And you laugh a lot. (laughs) You can use this podcast for ASHA professional development. For more information about us and CEUs, go to our website, www.slpnerdcast.com. SLP Nerdcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Even small contributions keep our CEU prices low and our program ad-free. You can contribute on our website by clicking support our work. You can also go to our website to find permanent products, notes, and other handouts. Some items are free, others are not, but everything is affordable. Visit our website to submit a call for papers to come on the show and present with us. Contact us anytime on Facebook, Instagram, or at info at slpnerdcast.com. We love hearing from our listeners, and we can't wait to learn what you have to teach us. Just a quick disclaimer, the contents of this episode are not meant to replace clinical advice. SLP Nerdcast, its hosts and guests do not represent or endorse specific products or procedures mentioned during our episodes unless otherwise stated. We are not PhDs, but we do research our material. We do our best to provide a thorough review and a fair representation of each topic that we tackle. That being said, it's always likely that there is an article that we've missed or another perspective that we haven't shared. If you have something to add to the conversation, please email us. We'd love to hear from you. We are obviously excited for today because we couldn't get through the intro without laughing. (laughs) So we are very, very excited to welcome back Dr. Trina Spencer and Dr. Doug Peterson. Welcome, Trina and Doug. Thank you. Exciting to be here again. Exciting to have you back. Trina and Doug, you guys are here to discuss dynamic assessment related to language and literacy. And we were lucky enough to have you guys join us once before. And listeners, if you haven't checked out our previous episode on dynamic assessment, please do. Doug and Trina, for our listeners who haven't listened to our previous episode, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Uh, Yeah, sure. (laughs) So I'm a professor at Brigham Young University. And uh, let's see, what else do you want to know about that? I I work in the Department of Communication Disorders. I'm a speech language pathologist. I worked in the schools for several years before I went and got my PhD. And it was real world issues that drove me to pursue a career in research and teaching. And um, yeah, do you want more, Amy? Is that enough? I mean, I think it, it helps, it helps set the stage. You're, you're a guy who's actually worked in real life. You've worked in schools. Um, in terms of your research, what are the areas that you have been the most interested in and focused on? Yeah. So I am pretty, so it, Trina and I both have very, um, similar interests, but I have definitely gone down this path of assessment lately. Uh, I mean, I've always been interested in assessment, and she is too. Not to not to say that Trina isn't into assessment as much as I am, but I'm just saying, like, it is a major focus of my life right now. It's okay. Yeah. Intervention is way more fun, Doug. I do love doing intervention research too. It's true. I, I I think here's what it is. When I was working in Washington, someone was presenting about a test. And they were talking about measuring comprehension, which is language, right? Language comprehension. And they were talking about doing it in a way that in my estimation was totally not valid. And it drove me crazy. And it made me feel like we have got to do a better job. And that, so like, I think that thread of assessment has been woven throughout my whole career as an SLP, as a researcher, it's been festering. And that's why I'm super excited about talking about assessment today, too, because I'm going to ex- explode about it. I just got things I need to say. Well, we're so uh, excited to give you a platform to say them. This is going to be great. Some of our best motivations for learning come from a place of like an angry place. I feel like. Yes. When you have that. a bee in your bonnet, you need to get it yes. out is how I feel about yeah. it. Trina, how about you? Tell okay. us about yourself. All right. Well, right now I'm an associate professor at University of South Florida. I am um, part of a research center called Right Path Research and Innovation Center. And our mission is to reduce uh, uh, disparities among vulnerable populations. And, you know, that kind of means do whatever it takes to to get kids performing well in school and socially. Um, I'm also affiliate faculty in communication sciences at our university. So I do a little bit of like 
work with SLPs, educators, you know, psychologists, whatever. And my uh, clinical background is also pretty diverse. I was a school psychologist in New York City, and I also am a board certified behavior analyst. And I've done my fair share of being a preschool teacher, special ed teacher, all of those kinds of things. And uh, I also had a similar like impetus to get to a PhD program because I was in the schools as a school psychologist. And, you know, they do a lot of testing, but none of it really made sense to me. I was like, I am so tired of these IQ tests. I'm so tired of these achievement tests because they don't actually give us what we really want and need. And I was kind of frustrated by that. And it was interesting because at one point I realized that we needed to know how children learn, not what they had already learned. And that key right there was like, well, I've got to do something about this because there's thousands and thousands of teachers and school psychologists in the schools and now SLPs, of course, who need better tools to get the job done right. And so, you know, I did my PhD at the same place as Doug. I know you can feel bad for me later, but <laughs> what came out of it was a pretty good complementary partnership. Like we knew, we both knew something about assessment and we both know something about intervention and these things are, you know, inexplicably linked. We, they need to be linked. And so doing them together in our kind of collaboration works out really well for us. And hopefully for the people who use our tools. A pretty good collaboration. That's how you're going to characterize our relationship. <laughs> yeah, it's just so right. <laughs> I love it. I mean, that's really what we all hope for. Yeah, yeah. just pretty okay. good. Yeah. That's pretty good. You, Amy, you're a pretty good co-host. Thanks, buddy. Right back at you. You're yeah, right back. You're pretty good. Solid medium. Okay. Well, before we get too entirely sidetracked with laughter, which is a risk, let's just be honest. It's a risk. I am going to go through our learning objectives and disclosures quick, 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 so that we can get into the good stuff. Uh, learning objective number one, explain how dynamic assessment differentiates between language disability and language difference. Learning objective number two, describe different applications of dynamic assessment that identify a disorder. Learning objective number three, explain how dynamic assessment can inform intervention. Financial and non-financial disclosures, Dr. Peterson and Dr. Spencer's financial relationships. They are co-authors of the Story Champs curriculum and Pearl Dynamic Assessment. They receive royalties from the sale of those items. Dr. Spencer and Dr. Peterson have no financial relationships to disclose, no non-financial relationships to disclose. Uh, Kate Grambois, that's me. I am the owner and founder of Grambois Therapy and Consulting and co-founder of SLP Nerdcast. Uh, my non-financial disclosures, I'm a member of ASHA, SIG12, and I serve on the AAC Advisory Group for Massachusetts Advocates for Children. I'm also a member of the Berkshire Association for Behavior Analysis and Therapy, MassABA, the Association for Behavior Analysis International, and the Corresponding Speech Pathology and Applied Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group. Uh, Amy, that's me. I'm an employee of a public school system and co-founder of SLP Nerdcast. And as far as my non-financial disclosures, I am also a member of ASHA SIG12, and I also serve on the AAC Advisory Group for Massachusetts Advocates for Children. All right, Trina and Doug, take it away. Tell us all the things. So we're going to talk about validity. Yes, you need to talk about validity first. Uh, can I talk about Star Trek just a little bit? Star Trek? For 30 seconds, go. Just, okay, 30 seconds. Just, just bear with me. I, I know this is weird, right? And I'm okay with that as long as you are. But so um, I show my students the opening scene from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Did we talk about this last time? We did not, but now no, I'm but I'm very curious. I really think that we should. This is maybe yeah, the best Trina, intro we've ever had because I have no idea where it's going. Oh, well, it's going somewhere. So Trina wouldn't let me talk about it last time. That's right, I was constrained. So um, this is an epic movie. I don't get any money for saying this, okay? But look, this is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, 1982. And it opens up with this scene where Kirstie Alley is Lieutenant Savick. She's in the captain's seat, okay? And they have to go into the neutral zone to rescue a ship that's lost life support. And there's like 360 people on this ship. She knows she has to go somewhere illegal to go rescue the ship. Um, and so she does it as this, as this new captain goes in with the Enterprise to rescue the ship. They get into the neutral zone. Immediately the ship disappears and three Klingon warships, these are the bad guys, they show up 
and they just start attacking the Enterprise. Things are blowing up all over the bridge. Spock is dying in the corner. Like everybody is, it's, it's legit, right? Here I am, I'm like 10 years old. I'm in the movie theater, I'm freaking out. Like everybody in this movie is dying in the opening scene. And then all of a sudden you hear somebody over the loudspeaker, Captain Kirk, of course, he says lights and all the lights come on and everybody comes back to life. And um, you realize it was just a test. The whole thing was just a test. It was a simulation. And I love to highlight the expense and the effort that these people went through to make this test for Lieutenant Savick, right? Because what they wanted to do was they wanted to test her reaction in a no-win scenario. Like, what is she really going to do in a situation where there's nothing you can do but essentially face death? And um, I mean, it, they, they have explosions going off in the, on the bridge in this simulation. It's as real as can get. And, and I think, okay, why did they do that? Why not just do a paper pencil, you know, multiple choice, true, false, oh, Lieutenant Savick, in this particular scenario, what would you do, right? That has, th this whole scenario though, has everything to do with validity, right? What they wanted to do was measure her response to that sort of situation. And the best way to do it was to put her in that situation as much as they could so they could get a valid interpretation of her response. And, and so, and that's what validity really is. Validity is truly measuring what you want to measure. And the people who created this test called the Kobayashi Maru test, they thought we can't really measure Lieutenant Savick's ability to respond in a no-win scenario based on her responses to a piece of paper and a pencil. So, um, so I kind of like to highlight that, like this is what validity is. You're really legitimately measuring what you want to measure and your interpretation of those results are interpretable or there's something that makes sense to you and you know what to do with those results. Okay, so that's, that's a really weird way to talk about what validity is, I think, right? But if you, you can immediately talk about and connect that to language, right? Like if you are interested in measuring how someone communicates using language in a functional way in the real world, how weird would it be for you to sit across a desk from them and ask them to just point to pictures, right? Like we're talking about a potential mismatch here, right? In what you want to measure and the way you're doing it. So I'm not saying that every test has to be totally ingrained in the real world, but I'm just saying what you're interested in measuring needs to align with the test. And okay, I, I want to add, right? Is this a good time, Doug? Yeah, please do. Okay, so I want to add when we're talking about maybe like educational assessments or speech language pathology assessments, oftentimes what we're really after the true construct is how someone learns language, right? But we're trying to measure that construct by actually measuring how much language do they know? And what we've got is a construct mismatch, like Doug said, right? So we, and these are different. Learning language and knowing language are different constructs. And that's why we need a more valid approach to measuring the construct we're actually interested in. Yeah, 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 right. Isn't, isn't it true that a language disorder is a learning disability? Right? Like we just don't characterize it that way, but that's what it is. It's a difficulty learning language. And, and so then when you go to say, I want to measure if someone has a language disorder, what you're really saying is I want to measure if someone has a language learning disability. And so then you don't measure that just by seeing what language they currently know. That's not measuring that construct of learning you want to actually get into the learning process. Mm -hmm. The irony of this is oftentimes we refer to like norm reference standardized tests as the gold standards. Unfortunately, they are not the gold standards. They are simply proxies of the actual construct we're interested in, which is learning language. And we have to make assumptions about a child's history before they take that test. And when the assumption is that they had really good 
um, you know, uh, verbal community and they had role models or verbal models, right? And so that and that everybody who takes that test has the same history and exposure and experience to uh, a verbal community. But like, that's a crazy assumption. We know that's not true. But that's a, that type of assumption is embedded in the use of norm reference standardized tests. That was said so succinctly. And I fully support your Star Trek example, just for the record. I think that painted a great picture and set the stage. Continue. Uh, you should see it with James Horner's soundtrack <laughs> and all the visuals. Oh, it's so much better than my little story. But yeah. You can YouTube it. I'm sure I can <laughs> find a way. That scene if you want. <laughs> okay, well, so Doug, when would an SLP want to use a dynamic assessment and what, for what purposes would they use it? Okay, okay, yeah. So I, I think we're gonna talk about two major purposes, right? One is for diagnosis to identify disorder or no disorder. And then the second one is for um, informing instruction and instructional planning. Uh, now I tend to focus on the first one I think that's probably because of my SLP background, right? We seem to be hyper-focused on this diagnostic process. When we think about assessment, that tends to be where our minds go. Um, and I apologize for that. But like that's- But wait just a second, Doug. It might also be because those are the kind of assessment tools that SLPs have been given. Yeah. Right? It's right. not just that's where you're going, that's where you've been trained to go because that's what's available. And that was one of my issues with school psychology. I was like, that's all I got is a bunch of norm reference standardized tests. I'd, I wanna do a different type of assessment that tells me what this kid needs to be able to learn language or literacy or whatever, not just, you know, a norm reference, that's all I've got, you know? Right, right. You're like the first school psychologist I ever met who wasn't just obsessed with assessment. It's like, I thought that's all they did was just go in and you know, diagnose, I, I think maybe I should stop talking. I'm gonna get in trouble. I had a lot of good friends who were school psychologists, but I mean, that's like, and I remember when RTI came out, side note, I remember when RTI came out, I remember thinking, huh, I wonder what my school psychology friends think about this. Is this gonna work them out of a job? Like you're not identifying disorder anymore with some kind of IQ discrepancy. Anyways, so the purposes, yeah, of dynamic assessment can be more than that. Right, but I think those are the two that we primarily want to focus on is diagnosis and informing instruction. So I have a question before you move past that, Doug. Um, we'll talk about validity. Is, is a test valid or is it something else when we're talking about validity? Yeah, that's a real leading question. I, I like it. Yeah, it's sure because you, you, didn't, you didn't say this and I wanted you to. <laughs> I kind of did. It's, it is the interpretation of the results that have to do with validity. So it's not really the test itself, but it's what you do with that test and the purposes for which that test is administered. Those are the things that have validity. You want to tighten that up, Trina, or do you feel like that was mm -hmm. pretty good? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do want to tighten it up. We, like, tell our vernacular, <laughs> our vernacular, we're just so used to saying things like, is that test valid, right? Well, what we should be saying is, is this decision valid using that test, right? So it's more about decision validity. And that's why we need to understand that there are different purposes of assessment in general because it's those purposes that tell us what kind of decision needs to be made. So for example, uh, I would not use a norm reference standardized test that was designed to uh, identify normal and not normal to be able to inform instruction or intervention because that's not the tool's purpose, right? So it, we would say that that decision would be invalid using a norm reference standardized test. And, you know, on the flip side, I wouldn't be using a classroom, you know, spelling test to identify a spelling disorder, right? That decision would be invalid using that particular assessment tool. So it's really about purposes, decisions, and making sure that the tool is intended to do that decision. And then, like, I like to think about it as decision validity, not test validity. 
you know, one of the examples I like to use is the Peabody Picture Vocabulary Test, which has been a very popular test in the speech language pathology world for a long time. And for certain purposes, it can be very valid. Say you wanted to get an inventory of a student's receptive vocabulary of, of main, whatever we want to call this, mainstream American English or something. You want to get, you know, an inventory of their ability to understand a particular set of vocabulary words that are in the PPBT. Then that test could have, the results of that test could be interpreted with validity, right? That, oh, okay, this is what the child can understand. But if you want to use it for another purpose, like to identify disorder, notice how it's driven by the purpose. If you want to, if you want to use that test to identify disorder, then the uh, validity evidence is against you for doing that. And um, and I, I mean, we don't have time to go into all the psychometrics of the PPVT and why that might be. Um, and we don't have time to do you know salmon tests or things like that that I like to do. But it's just like. If the extent to which you've been exposed to vocabulary has so much to do with your inventory and not necessarily whether you have a disorder or not in language. But okay, I don't want to I don't want to take us down too many side paths. I kind of want to do that today, I can tell. It's <laughs> because you're having so much fun. <laughs> or like a medium amount of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. You don't have to answer that. Sorry. As you were. So when we think about norm reference tests and you guys are saying they're not sufficient on their own for identifying disorders, can you talk to us about that? Like, like why can't I just go in and do this one test, do the, do the Peabody and be like, yep, here's a vocabulary problem right here. I see it. What am I missing by doing that? Or am I, is, is that, is that? No, I, we, we know the answer or we have an answer. Just, I'm trying to let Doug talk. Well, I, well I've been talking too much. It's just I want you to say something. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll say one thing, but then Doug, I'm going to hand it over to you to talk about our culturally and linguistically diverse kiddos. Okay. So the first answer, the first layer of the answer is that again, norm reference tests are not actually measuring whether or not someone has a difficult time learning something, right? So it's still a construct mismatch. Um, and the second layer of the answer is that those types of tests, norm reference standardized tests are actually, ha actually have some challenges for many kids in our schools or in our, in our country. Yeah, I think that, um, we should be careful not to like make some kind of blanket statement, like norm reference tests can't identify disorder because that's not true at all. Right. And I think that um, if you had a super homogeneous population and you knew their background and their history, and you went and administered a norm reference test to students or individuals from that population, you very well could identify a disorder, right? Easily. And, and um, you could interpret that with validity. Um, but, but the United States in particular uh, is not a homogeneous population of individuals in any way. Right, we have so much diversity in this country. Uh, man, I mean, I don't want to get in trouble here, but even the way that we norm our norm reference tests, the normative samples don't make a lot of sense to me. We'll we'll say, I so what what well what test makers will do is they will go out and administer their test to a lot of people, hopefully a representative sample of individuals across the country. And, um, and they'll try to get a representation of the diversity of the country. So they'll try to get like 16% Hispanic and 12% African-American and 5% Asian, et cetera, in their normative sample. And, um, and then what they do is they give you the mean performance, accumulated mean, right? Like the mean of all of those people. And then, and you get standard deviations around it. From there, you derive your standard scores and your percentile ranks and all of that, right? But who is that mean representing? Right. Like who is who is 16% Hispanic and 12% African-American <laughs> and 5%? I'm sure that we have some people who have that kind of makeup, right? But I mean, it's really odd. 
if you really wanted to do a norm reference test in my estimation, estimation accurately, you would try to find micropopulations, get norms for those populations so that they can more accurately reflect the diversity that we have in the country. Um, so I, I, I can't believe we haven't even talked about um, Elena Plant's study that she did with um, Spalding and Farinella in 2006, but I think we should talk about it. I kind of like worship her and she doesn't even really know me. This is amazing. <laughs> I probably say her name every day, it's, it's crazy. But um, I, I love Dr. Plant's work. And she did this study with colleagues uh, where they analyzed 40 some odd published norm referenced language tests. And, and I, I love the introduction of this paper because it's just so obvious. They say, um, if you have a language disorder, you should score low on a language test, right? This is sort of like axiomatic. They're like, language disorder? your performance should be low on a language test. And then they went to see if that actually was true. Out of these 43 norm reference tests that are published for language, um, how many children with language disorder, what percentage of children with language disorder actually do perform poorly on those tests? And they found that there was tons of overlap. The children with language disorder were scoring in the same range as children without language disorder and vice versa. And so what that means is, of course, this test, these tests are not very good at actually doing the one purpose that they have, which is to identify disorder. Like that is why you norm a test. That's crazy. That's yeah, that's that makes no sense. Yeah. That is dumb. <laughs> that is just, that makes no sense. <laughs> the tragedy, it's a tragedy. And, and so, um, and a lot of that has to do with just the way the test is constructed or the diversity of individuals that we have. Um, and uh, yeah, so it is, it's unfortunate. And so they, they looked at two things that are particularly important to analyze when you're determining the validity of, of the interpretation of a test. And those are sensitivity and specificity. And sensitivity is how well the test accurately identifies the individual with the disorder and specificity is how well the test accurately identifies individuals who don't have the disorder. And you have to have both. You have to have adequate sensitivity and specificity. They kind of play against each other. And um, so they, they only found nine. Now this, this, this study was done in 2006. So it was a while ago, right? But they only found nine out of those 43 tests that even provided evidence of the one thing they're mostly supposed to do, which is show that they have adequate sensitivity and specificity. And then out of those nine tests, only five of them had 80% sensitivity and specificity or higher. Um, so, and that's not even looking at individuals who are culturally and linguistically diverse. And just, just to make sure I'm interpreting this the right way, if, if a test doesn't have both of those things and it doesn't have highly accurate sensitivity and specificity, we're either going to be over-diagnosing, using air quotes, but like over-diagnosing people with a language disorder that they don't have, or we're going to be missing identification of people who do have a language disorder because it's not picking them up. Exactly. Okay. And to say something else back to you to sort of recap all of this as my, my small, very general population brain is sort of absorbing all of this. Norm referenced assessments are not doing the job they're supposed to do, number one. They're the, the bias in the way that they're norm referenced is a significant problem in, in, in identifying individuals who have a language disorder. And yet they are what we are taught to use and what as a, as a, as a culture within our profession what we rely on to identify language disorders. So I have to assume that dynamic assessment has a place here and I feel like it's coming. So, so, I mean, how does dynamic, I feel like it's like the magical unicorn that's going to like ride in and solve all of the problems. Notice I said unicorn and not knight in shining armor. So how can, how, tell us about the role of dynamic assessment here, unless you have other knowledge and science that you want to drop on us about norm reference assessments and all of its baggage. So I, I, 
we can make that transition. And I think it's a good time to make the transition. And I, I, I also, um, with Doug, I was like, I don't, we don't wanna say that norm reference tests are not useful, right? It's just, those are the tools that have the psychometric um, qualities that are preferred, right? So they have good reliability, they have good, you know, evidences of validity, you know, to say, to say something, you know, they do have their, their uses. Um, but especially when we have such a diverse um, school population or children, child population, one of the challenges that we have is that children who don't speak English as a first language, or even children who are economically disadvantaged, they tend to have low skills when they enter school. Right, and be, if they don't speak English as a first language, everyone's really hesitant to identify them as a with a disability, partially because the tools that they have available to them are not well normed with that population, right, with a subset of that population, and another is that they can't actually tell the difference between a disorder or just a difference, right? And so like, just because a child doesn't speak English as their first language does not mean they have a language disorder. And so we've gotta be really careful about that. And in fact, they are. And children who are uh, language minority students or you know, don't speak English as a, as a first language, they tend to be under-identified for language disorders or even reading disorders in, um, you know, in kindergarten and first grade. However, that means that their difficulties are going unidentified for so long that by the time they're in third grade, kids who probably really don't have a frank disorder are now so far behind that they qualify for special education, which is then what we get is overrepresentation of language minority students in special education. And in fact, we see that huge increases because we haven't taken care of their problems. So there's a real need to identify these kids earlier, right? And this, this idea of like underrepresentation and overrepresentation in the sequence or in the, across the grades, it's really a general education problem, not just a special ed. So it doesn't all fall on, you know, SLPs and school psychs and whatnot, but it's a, it's a problem nationwide. It's one of the reasons why response to intervention or multi-tiered frameworks um, have, an, have a really important place is that they are able to kind of catch those kids be and give them an option for intervention before identification of a disability. But dynamic assessment actually does the same kind of thing that response intervention does. It gives them, um, we, we kind of test out how they learn so that we can uh, improve or hasten their identification. Oh, this is the, this is the cartoon. Okay, so we recently had, um, we recently interviewed uh, Chelsea Privet, Chelsea Privet who's a doctoral student, um, and she was talking about this hard cartoon. She came out to talk to us about language ideology um, and linguistic diversity, and I had never seen this cartoon before. I'm hoping that maybe we can describe this cartoon for our listeners and then maybe put it up on our website. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so what I'm showing you here is this, it's a, a very famous cartoon. Unfortunately, I don't see the- Well, it was famous enough for me to not know it. Yeah. So if you don't know this cartoon, it's okay. Yeah, so there's, you know, a psychologist or some, you know, nice man, it looks like, uh, and there are animals all lined up, you know, we've got birds, monkeys, penguins, elephant, a fish, a sea lion, it looks like, and a dog, and the, um, the man is saying, uh, for a fair selection, everybody has to take the same exam, please climb that tree. Well, clearly some of those animals cannot climb a tree but the test is the same for everyone, which is what kind of what a norm reference standardized test does. It gives the same test in the same way to everyone, right? So in our last episode with you guys, you described what a dynamic assessment is and some of the different components of dynamic assessment. And I am make, I'm, I'm jumping from stone to stone here in that the the concept or construct of dynamic assessment is to bridge this gap so that everyone doesn't have the same test. So the, in other words, using this analogy with this picture, that poor fish doesn't have to climb that tree because I can't. Well, the tree is the standardized or norm reference assessment, right? Like that's, right. that's the tree and that's cool if you fit in the tree box, but not if you're the fish. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it, it just doesn't account for uh, differences in experience in particular. Uh, so I, I like to use an example of Alaska salmon. I give my students a salmon test all the time because I want them to try to identify Alaska salmon and they can't do it. And, and, and they can't identify the salmon not because they have some kind of disorder. It, it's just because they haven't been exposed to it. And so it's sort of like unfair for me though to say, okay, everybody, we're all gonna take the same test. You're all going to identify these salmon. And my friends in Alaska are like, oh yeah, sweet, easy, I got this, right? That's not a problem for them. But for other individuals, it's totally biased against them. It's unfair. And a lot of times our norm reference standardized assessments have this bias where um, we're asking children to do things that they can't do, not because they have a disorder, but because they've never been exposed to it, never seen it before, or, or whatever it might be, right? Some other external factor that's not within them. Yeah. So dynamic assessment is obviously the thing that both Doug and I have landed on. Um, and there's good reason for it. Like dynamic assessment has actually been studied for long time, a long, long time. There are tons of publications about it, especially in the psychology journals. Um, but in terms of speech language pathology, there's a number of really great studies that use a dynamic assessment approach to identify a language disability. And a dynamic assessment large, you know, let me just give you an overarching definition of what I'm talking about. It's really a learning assessment. Right? It's not a performance assessment, it's a learning assessment. Like how we need to assess how well this child learns blank, whatever that could be. So there are lots of forms of dynamic assessment. Um, we could do things like a test teach test in a small amount of time, which is very similar to a response to intervention framework where they get um, screening in the fall, they get instruction in throughout that semester and then screening again in um, winter and then the same for the spring semester, right? So there's a test we teach in between and we post-test. Um, but in a dynamic assessment, that would be collapsed into a much smaller time period. Now, some of the studies that are out there for dynamic assessments actually take a month to do. So like I think some of Pena's earlier work was you know, a test teach test model that spanned maybe four weeks, I believe. And others that are like an hour long or sometimes they're like three days, whatever it is. But Doug and I have really worked hard to try to get that down to a very short period of time so that we do a test, teach, test in a really, really small but important set of skills so that we can quickly, more quickly and more um, efficiently and accurately, I predict which kids are going to have troubles learning. And mostly because the kids don't have time, like every minute they are not learning in their classrooms or not getting the right amount of instruction is detrimental to them in their futures. Not just the kids that don't have time, it's the clinicians SOPs also, mm -hmm. right? I think that conceptually dynamic assessment makes a lot of sense to to all of us but clinically you know like the feasible implementation of it has been somewhat problematic um and and so yeah like trina said we've tried very hard to make these things efficient while simultaneously not losing you know sensitivity and specificity or or validity can you tell us a little bit more about just how so we, as, as somebody who's been doing a lot of standardized norm reference tests since I, since I got out of grad school, I, I kind of know the process, although I'm learning the process is, is a flawed process, but I know the process for identifying a, a language disability in that paradigm, right? Like your X standard deviations below the mean, this is your percentile rank. I've identified you in these specific ways. What is, how, how do we figure that out? through the lens of dynamic assessment? Like how are we making those determinations, those like assessment determinations about language disability? Right, so the interpretation of a dynamic assessment can be either through criterion referencing or norm referencing. Um, I don't know anyone that's done a norm reference dynamic assessment, we're working on it. But 
traditionally it's through a criterion reference lens. That's what you do with the data. You take them and then you reference them to a criteria. And um, so the, the way it works in the real world is you administer a dynamic assessment. I just got an email yesterday from a colleague who administered a dynamic assessment. And she said, um, this student got a post-test score of 11 and their modifiability score, which is a score you get from the dynamic assessment, that modifiability score was a 17. And their overall um, ability to learn that score was a three out of a scale of zero to four. And so she said, how do I interpret those results, right? And I didn't come back to her with, this child has a standard score of 70 and they're out below the first percentile or at the second percentile, right? I said, um, for, for good sensitivity and specificity, students who have a language disorder, their uh, post-test score is usually a nine or lower and their modifiability score is an 11 or lower. I'm just kind of making that up, but notice how I'm just giving her a cut. I'm giving her a line to draw. And I'm saying the child's, any child who scores below that, then those are the kids that we identified in our studies as having disorder. And we're like 90% accurate or so in doing that. So that's the very same information you put in your report. And you can say, yeah, I administered a norm reference test. This child scored with a standard score of 80, et cetera, et cetera. And you can also say, I administered a dynamic assessment. And based on the results of that assessment, they, um, they were identified as having a language disorder or classified as having a language disorder based on the results of this dynamic assessment. They didn't make the, meet the cut point. I would also say that like in the speech language literature, the, um, the assessment tools or the instruments that are being used for dynamic assessment do not necessarily meet the criteria to be like broadly um, disseminated. Okay, so they're just trying testing it out to see if it works to predict which kids are um, have a language impairment, and it de it depends on whether they can create an instrument that is standardized, right? Because we still need to have standardization. Now, keep in mind, standardization means the administration and scoring procedures are standardized. It doesn't mean that there's a norm group, right? So we we do have to have that, and there needs to be sensitivity and specificity data. Right. If you're going to use a, a dynamic assessment for um, identifying a disorder, those are critical. Right. And so there aren't very many of those available. That's why SLPs are probably not using dynamic assessment to identify disorder because there are too few of them available. Now, the work that Doug and I have been doing is to create such tools that will be will be like have enough psychometric qualities to be able to be used and that are efficient, feasible to use in schools or wherever, and that has the great sensitivity and specificity data. And like, I'm sure we can talk about some of those because some of those are available and some of those are we're still working on, but they are definitely in the literature, right? So sometimes research, we can publish the studies before the actual instruments get available um, broadly. So I'm looking at our learning objectives and thinking about all of this information about dynamic assessment and, you know, the pitfalls and, and drawbacks of norm reference assessment. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about our second learning objective in terms of how dynamic assessment can be, like what kinds of applications of, of dynamic assessment will specifically identify a disorder? Sure. Doug, I think you should answer that. At least okay. try it first. Yeah, try and it. And then she'll correct you. <laughs> oh, welcome to my life. <laughs> so, so there are a, a lot of really amazing researchers that have done work in dynamic assessment. And they haven't only focused on narrative language as the medium, whereas the topic of that dynamic assessment. Um, Kapanskolo, Restrepo, Thompson, and several others have focused on word learning or, or, or vocabulary. Um, uh, like Liz Pena, Litz, 
those researchers, um, and they found that they can identify language disorder and separate language difference from language disorder with accuracy by using word learning and measuring someone's ability to learn new words. And they find that children with language disorder have a harder time learning new vocabulary. So that's one way the dynamic assessment has been applied. Um, narrative has been focused on maybe the most out of all the dynamic assessment of language research. And um, there have been many, many studies on dynamic assessment of narratives. There's, there's, there's a new meta-analysis out by Oriana at all. I think it's 2000, I think it's 2020. Um, they actually do a meta-analysis of dynamic assessments of language and, and the results are pretty clear that they're accurate. Um, Tracy Ukrainitz and her colleagues did a study on categorization, again, a vocabulary task. So, um, so, this, so you can see how dynamic assessment can be applied in many different ways, but ultimately you're still, I think, now this hasn't been confirmed, but I just am so suspicious that you're really in the end measuring essentially the same thing. You're measuring the ability to learn language. And it seems like whether it's vocabulary, narrative, uh, it's still tapping somehow that same construct of, of difficulty learning and within at least the, the domain broadly of language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just to, so like that, the answer to that question is the literature's talked about word learning, narrative, and categorization, um, but there's also different types of, um, you know, dynamic assessment formats, really. So you could do the test, teach, test. You could do graduated prompting where you increase or withdraw your prompts um, uh, within the test while you're teaching, or you could test the limits, right? But one of the things that's key is that we have some sort of measure about modifiability or responsiveness to the uh, training or instruction or intervention that happens during the dynamic assessment. So there's always, the, the, that's a key feature of dynamic assessment that there is some instruction going on. And um, oftentimes the examiner or the interventionist in the uh, dynamic assessment um, rates the child on measures related to modifiability, like how many prompts did they need? How quickly did they learn this? You know, what was their frustration level? Things like that, that kind of give you a clue about their learning, right? It's more about process and not as much about product. And um, consistently in the literature, when the process is measured, like through something like the modifiability scales or something, that is more accurate than the product, like pre to post test gains even, right? But we also know that if we combine them, sometimes we get superior classification. So if it's a test teach test kind of format and we put the child's gains with their modifiability, we can be even more accurate in the classification, right? And for our listeners, Trina, this is, you talked about this quite a bit in our, in our first podcast with you guys, right? This was the cake and the sandwich. And I didn't remember it just because it's food, but maybe a little bit because it's food. <laughs> um, so if anybody is listening and you want to hear kind of Trina give a, um, a more detailed explanation kind of of what that might look like, listen to the first one and listen for cakes and in my mind, it's grilled cheese, but it's probably just the same. If it makes you feel any better, I remembered the cake one, but not the sandwich one. <laughs> what does that tell you? <laughs> okay, so, and again, oh, sorry, Doug, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to add that you can also measure reading, decoding. And I just can't wait to talk about that. That's all I wanted to say. And I'm just waiting for permission to be able to talk about it. Right. So we, we should be careful to say that dynamic assessment is not just for language, right? There are other researchers and other content that can, um, is amenable to dynamic assessment. Actually, pretty much anything is. But there are researcher, researchers that do math, they do um, phonological awareness, even inference making and decoding, of course. So. But Kate, I interrupted you and I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's fine. I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, 
how something that we said earlier in the episode about how SLPs may not be familiar with dynamic assessment. I know I definitely wasn't before I met you two glorious folk um, and how, you know, in listening to this dynamic assessment clearly deserves a place at the table. We should be using them and, and educating ourselves about them. Um, and I want to talk about our last learning objective also in terms of how dynamic assessment can inform intervention. But I also want to ask for our listeners who might not, you know, are listening to this and thinking, okay, I need to incorporate dynamic assessment more in my regular practice, but they don't know exactly what to do or exactly how to modify those norm referenced assessments to use them in a more dynamic way. Or, you know, what do you do? What, what should people, what can they take away from this episode to actually do? Yeah. Can I talk, can I talk about decoding just real fast? (laughs) So um, I'm, I'm perusing through Facebook and somebody posts, how do I identify dyslexia at the beginning of kindergarten? And all of these people post these things like, you should do dibbles, you should do aims web, you should do a cadence, you should measure phonemic awareness, you should measure letter names, letter sounds. And I'm like, what are you people talking about? How are you going to identify dyslexia at the beginning of kindergarten by measuring someone's phonemic awareness or their letter names or their letter sounds? You, that is not going to identify dyslexia. What that's going to do is over-identify a million kids who don't, for whatever reason, know their letter sounds or their letter names or don't have adequate phonemic awareness. It, it's, oh, I just don't. Instead of measuring what they currently know, which is confounded by so many potential factors, why don't you instead measure their ability to learn to decode? And that's one of the things that we've done. So Trina and I have done this study. We followed these these 600 kindergarten children from kindergarten all the way to the end of fifth grade. And we predicted at the beginning of kindergarten with a three minute dynamic assessment, which just simply asked children to read nonsense words at pretest, which they could not do. And then we taught them very quickly how to read those nonsense words, and then we tested them again, and we measured their modifiability. How hard was it for them to learn to read those words? And we've got like 80% accuracy in predicting future difficulty with decoding. With a three-minute test. In three yeah. minutes, that's right. Six years later, right? So, so uh, we're we gonna have these reference- kids for years. We will put this reference in our show notes for everyone who's listening, whose brain just exploded like a teeny bit. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that, that's like a so, monumental so. thing in my limited estimation. <laughs> and I also want to say that we compared cause these kids also got dibbles. You know, I love dibbles people, but it is not accurate at identifying at the beginning of kindergarten. They know that, right? It does not accurately identify them. The dibbles accuracy was less than 50%. Why aren't we all doing this? Why aren't we, why aren't we all doing this from the beginning? This is nuts. It's just crazy. Right. So, so the, the implications are profound, right? You can identify, you can take a kindergartner at the beginning of the school year and predict which ones will have difficulty learning to decode. And then you can go in and do early intervention before the manifestation <laughs> of a disorder ever emerges and totally prevent it from ever happening. That child will never, ever know in their life that reading was going to be hard for them. So that's one of the ways dynamic assessment can inform intervention. If you do it early enough, it can tell you, hey, which kids need it and they get it immediately. Now, our dynamic assessment of decoding is available through language dynamics group. um, And it's paired with our dynamic assessment of narratives. Right. So then at the beginning of kindergarten, you can do the three minute decoding one and the seven minute language one and be able to sort kids into the right intervention boxes. So you're going to have maybe 75% of the kids, 60% 60 to 75% of your kids at the beginning of kindergarten are not going to need intervention or they're not at risk of having a disability you're gonna have another 20% that have decoding only problems, right? Those are likely going to develop dyslexia. Then you're gonna have uh, about 10 to 15% of kids who have difficulties in language only. So those are the kids who are gonna have comprehension difficulties and or language disorders. 
And then another 10% that are likely have difficulties in both decoding and language comprehension. So you can sort those kids at the beginning of kindergarten and start intervention immediately in September. Okay. So I see the power of dynamic assessment in terms of, you know, informing intervention, but holy cow, that is nuts. Am I the only one that's having a reaction? But I, no. <laughs> well, I think it's because we've heard it before. People go, no, that's too good to be true. And we just kind of go, all right, if you say so, but we Here's have the paper on it. Here's the data, 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 data. You can't argue with the number. Yeah. That is amazing. And I'm sorry. In addition to that, all of our participants in these studies, you know, they are bilingual, um, you know, low income children, Native Americans, African Americans. You know, we're talking about a population that is very difficult to identify using traditional tests. So we're intentionally choosing participants that might be hard, right? And we report the data that way so that you can see it's just as reliable and it's just as valid when we're predicting children who are normally um, not very well placed or identified properly. I'm just so glad that this is being recorded so <laughs> everyone can hear it. This is like just so important. And I feel like, I mean, I was educated, you know, a long time ago and I, I am assuming and hoping that education and graduate school about assessment is different now, but this is, um, this is huge. This is really, really important. And, and tell me more. Okay. Tell us more about how dynamic assessment informs intervention. And then before we do wrap up, I want to hear the answer to my question about like what clinicians who are listening to this now, who want to incorporate dynamic assessment into their practice, what can they actually go do? You can choose which one to answer first. <laughs> so, so we have mostly been talking about dynamic assessments that have decision validity for classification, okay? And, and you have to have, you have to probably purchase something that somebody, a test developer has taken care of, right? They've taken care of the reliability and validity studies. So Doug and I have dynamic assessments that are commercialized that have been through those psychometrics. So been through the psychometric studies that are designed for improving classification. We talk about our kindergarten screener, it's called the PEARL. Now, that is one way to sort kids at the beginning of kindergarten and get them started intervention. Now, there are other mechanisms or other types of dynamic assessment that are not necessarily standardized and they're more like clinical in nature, right? So for example, you can use a dynamic assessment in an AAC evaluation where you're really looking at what grid size is appropriate for this particular child. And so you may go, you know, present one and see how the child performs, pre present a different one, see how the child performs and so on. And they, in that type of a dynamic assessment, you're looking for where is this child's zone of proximal development with AAC use? And by the way, I'm actually talking about a, a recent article um, by, oh, let me get her name right, uh, Gavarder and colleagues from um, New Mexico. And there are other AAC dynamic assessment studies that they're not, their goal is not to identify disorder, but to be able to uh, identify the child's zone of proximal development for instruction, right? So there's a lot of ways to use dynamic assessment for that way. And if that's the case, then they could do something as simple as using one of our narrative language measures stories, right? doing one of an assessment, doing an NLM retail, and then trying to teach them and then do another NLM retail, right? And, and Trina, if I could just interrupt for a moment, we do provide very detailed procedures in the research on how we've done this dynamic assessment. So someone could pick up our research on identifying decoding problems or identifying language disorder using narratives. You could pick up the research and you could replicate what's in there. And you don't have to buy anything. You, you can follow step by step um, how to do it. And so I realize a lot of people don't want that, right? But like that's like Monday morning, you wanna do dynamic assessment? Download one of those articles from, from the ASHA webpage. Mm -hmm. Just and, keep in uh, mind though, if you use something like that, it has to be a supplement to other things, right? Or you're using it to inform maybe goals, right? You could identify some really good IEP goals using that method, right? Because that, whatever that SLP does, if it's not the exact scripted procedures, 
from the instrument that was developed with the classification accuracy and reliability and validity evidence, then you know, you're kind of using it for clinical purposes, not for diagnostic purposes. I wonder though, if that's a good place to start, because I feel like as someone who's worked in schools and worked in outpatient settings, you know, there is this expectation kind of by the funding agency or by the employer that assessments look a certain way. And I, I wonder if you guys were able to talk a little bit just about how incorporating dynamic assessments is not just going to be something that gives us better information. It's also moving toward a more universal design and access for everybody, right? So it's, you know, in your study where you're looking at people who are dual language learners, if we just do dynamic assessment for everybody, it's more accessible for everybody. Similarly, you know, if you're an AAC user and maybe you have a complex body and you haven't had these same life experiences, dynamic assessment is going to be more universally accessible. I don't know if you guys had thoughts about kind of as us clinicians, kind of boots on the ground in the school, like how we can also shift, not just the, the quality of the information that we're getting, but sort of shift the machine a bit. Yeah, I really think that it's important to emphasize the autonomy that speech language pathologists have. You are the professional in your system and you understand language and articulation and phonology, et cetera, more so than anyone else. And you are a licensed professional. And there is no law anywhere that indicates that you have to qualify someone for services based on a norm reference standardized test. And so it's time for you to just step up and say, I'll use a norm reference test, that's fine, but it will only be part of what I do. I'm going to use evidence-based practice and here's the research, it's unambiguous now. It is clear that dynamic assessment should be used in addition to other assessment approaches to help identify mm -hmm. our children who need help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think now that most schools are converting to like an RTI or MTSS framework, they're going to understand the need and that construct that you're really after how well they learn and that that information from a dynamic assessment is going to give them so much more than disorder, not disorder. It's going to give them information about what the child can do in class or what kind of supports they're going to need. Like, is this kid going to need a one-on-one -on -one assistant or can he be fine in the mainstream classroom? No, I, I think that that, I think that saying it makes sense is redundant. That's powerful is what it is. And I am really hoping that, you know, everybody who has listened to this takes these clinically actionable steps and puts them into practice um, to, improve our way of evaluating and our way of looking at these, um, you know, in improving the culture of our assessment skills as a whole. I think that's, that's critically important. Um, we, I know we mentioned a thousand resources and references. All of the literature that we mentioned will be listed in the show notes. So anyone listening can go dig themselves into a little nerd hole and do some additional reading. Um, Trina and Doug, is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners? Any more gems of wisdom that you want to leave our listeners with before we, before we say goodbye? Gems of wisdom. Only that I really do encourage you to try to adopt some aspect of dynamic assessment because like Amy mentioned, there's a universal design feature there, right? Where it is far more inclusive and far more ethical and less biased than a lot of the assessment approaches, approaches that, that many of us are using right now. And I think my little gem is gonna be like, don't limit yourself to just the language construct either, right? It's anything and everything that you might need to teach an individual. So I once used dynamic assessment to identify which vocational jobs would be appropriate for high school life skills students, right? It's the same idea. I need to put them in and try to teach them this task and see how they do. Did they like it? Did they like throw the broom or did they hit me with it, right? That kind of information is very useful. So open your mind to all the possibilities and all the things that you might be able to teach in the context of a dynamic assessment. You guys are you guys awesome. Roll. Thanks for coming by. This was really great. 
Um, anybody who has additional questions, you can reach out to us anytime. Uh, you can, you can use this episode for 0.1 ASHA CEU. You, if you're interested in doing that, you can take the quiz through our website, www.slpnerdcast.com. As I mentioned, all of the resources and references that we listed throughout the episode will be in our show notes so that you can read on if you feel inspired. Um, again, Trina and Doug, thank you so much for joining us and hope everybody enjoyed learning a little bit today. Thanks for joining us.